Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. This is episode 102. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So this episode we are calling Mud Dope and Music. Uh, it's a history of the Woodstock concert. But first, a couple of items I wanted to do with the fellas here uh, before we dig into the, our, our history topic for the week. First of all, though, let's jump in since I'm hosting. We're in the atrium, <laughs> Studio R. Uh, a little cool in the atrium today, but that's all right. It'll yeah, warm up. a little overcast, but uh, still a nice view here in the atrium. I always enjoy it. But we have a comment from YouTube on episode 58. What if Stonewall Jackson had been in Gettysburg? And it's from Aaron A. And he says, I search often for videos on what ifs, but it wasn't until last week that I found your videos. I don't know why YouTube didn't direct me to them. Great podcast. Huh. So thank you very much, Aaron. Well, how and, about that? Yeah, and so um, What Ifs is, is a regular feature in our history. We'll direct you to also What If on Frederick III uh, that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And our What If on If Robert Kennedy Had Not Been Killed. Which is another one of our favorite uh, What If episodes. Mm-hmm. Yep. We yeah. You know that's one of the things we like because I think that's it's it's a different way for us to explore questions. You know, we like yes. to we we like to answer questions, and that's what a What If is. You know, it's it's what does it mean if it went this way instead of the other way? But yeah. Yeah. What what was the historical impact? Because we talk all the time about history is a thread. Well, what happens if you pull <coughs> on a thread and Right. It breaks. <laughs> that's right. Or it's a different thread that goes through there. You know, yes. Yeah. You know, all sorts of things like that. And then also, uh, listeners, um, we decided to start this recording session early today. So uh, that gave us an excuse to visit our, our favorite breakfast restaurant, Biscuit Belly, yes. this morning. And oh, it was tremendous. Oh, my gosh. It was so good. Well, it's the official breakfast yes. menu of Steaks and Otters now. It yeah, absolutely it just is. is. It just yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, they don't know that, but... <laughs> Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Maybe our listeners will tell them. That's right. Uh, so good. And, so good. And the best part, uh, Francis had the biscuit equivalent of a hot brown. So listeners, if you're not from Kentucky you don't know what a hot brown is, a hot brown is an open-faced turkey sandwich with bacon and cream gravy. Right. Biscuit Belly's variation is two biscuits, a ton of chunky... Turkey breast, like real turkey, not shaved turkey. Yeah, it wasn't sandwich. turkey breast either. It was it was just turkey, you know. So it, it, it's 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 not dry. Yeah, it's, it a, it's that it's a different. It's it's the the dark meat. Ooh, so we, ooh. yeah, it was it was that's kind of their thing. Is they chicken thighs and turkey thighs, uh, which gives it a completely different flavor. Yeah, it yeah. was real chunk turkey, couple slices of bacon and gravy all over it, and. The, I guess she was the shift manager, maybe. Presumably, yeah. Uh, came up to Francis and said, would you like more gravy? So that, that's Our jaws <laughs> hit the table. That's right. I was about halfway finished. I'd eaten, because it's two biscuits, and they're huge. I'd eaten one, and I'm about halfway through, and, you know, she could see the plate's half empty, and she looked, would you like some more gravy? And I'm thinking, that's Whoa, a thing. <laughs> that's a thing. Francis's yeah. eyes got to be about the, the size of hubcaps. And yeah. And I was like, why, yes. <laughs> yes, I would. I would very much like some more gravy. <laughs> So that's now, I think, going to be a, a new Snakes and Otters catchphrase. Yes. That Would you we're like, going to use uh, at every opportunity, whether it's appropriate or not. Would you like Especially if it's not. <laughs> that's right. 
Would you like more green? I mean, I was handing her my plate. She goes, no, no, I'll bring you some. Yes. <laughs> it's like, here, take it. Yeah. Load up. That's right. It's like Oliver Twist, right? That's right. Please, uh, please, ma'am, may I have some more gravy? That's right. <laughs> Oh my gosh, she was wonderful though. She really oh, was. She was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we sent yeah. our thanks to her and the kitchen staff before we left. That's right. You Biscuit know, uh, Billy's tremendous. Oh, that's so right. Good. Business yeah. owners, restaurant owners, you could learn a lot from just little things like that. Well, and the food is so good. I mean, it's, it's not like Waffle House where it's your basic stuff. I mean, you've got some more exotic breakfast stuff. A few. Which is mainly just variations on stuff you probably already know. Yeah. And again, little touches. Homemade jam for the biscuits. Yeah, homemade jam, yeah. It was so good. And so biscuits, we had big plates of hash browns. Oh my god, I ordered a side of hash browns. And it's officially a side. So I'm expecting like, you know, three, four inches across, you know. Uh, something like you get through a McDonald's draft through is what yeah. you're expecting. Yeah. No, it was like an eight inch plate covered. That's right. <laughs> edge to edge. He had to share and I, I enjoyed it. With my extra oh. gravy. <laughs> yes, I had to ask when she came back at the end. Just curious, are the hash browns fried with a little bit of butter? I said, oh, yes. I thought so. <laughs> oh, my gosh, they were so good. So that's about four minutes of the whole episode there discussing Biscuit Belly. So it's you mean a lot to us, Biscuit You do, belly. And, uh, and listeners, it's worth your time. If you've got one near you, stop in. You'll enjoy good it. Good Heine Brothers coffee, too. Yes, yeah, that's so, right. Very. So I'm good. not a coffee guy much, but yep, it was very good. Oh, I meant to make my coffee before nice, started, good, Nice, forgot. good hot Joe. It was good. Yeah, cup of Joe. So, okay. Woodstock. Right, Woodstock. <laughs> the palate cleanse episode. Yes, yes. again, it, it, this year is mostly going to be World War II stuff, but here and there we're going to pause and do something different. And this one was one of my kickouts because the whole idea of it fascinates me. Uh, again, it's this sort of baby boomer cultural touchstone, like where were you when Kennedy was killed? And every boomer claims to have been there, I think. Yeah, all 45 million of them. <laughs> <laughs> but... Hey, it, they did have an estimated crowd of over 400,000 people on a little bitty farm in New York. Um, so August 1969, three days. It's billed as three days of, what was it, peace and music. Peace and music, yeah. And uh, organized as a concert. Uh, and originally they were planning to make some money here. Right. This is, gonna, this is a capitalist venture to start with. Yes, this was not meant to be uh, all that it turned out to be. Um, well, they expected maybe 50,000 people, yeah. which is huge because they'd done sure. a similar thing in Florida the year before, and they got the same people. They got 25,000 for that, so they figured 50,000 this time. Yeah, and, and all of a sudden, it, it, it struck a nerve and a chord in some fashion. Right. It was a perfect storm <coughs> of events, obviously, to get it to happen. Yeah. And, you know, this was a major, I mean, 32 acts eventually played. Right. And a lot of famous ones, but what astonished me were the number of famous people that were invited that declined. Yeah, no, if you look on the, the Wikipedia page, is actually very good with all of this. It has got you know tons of folks that didn't didn't come. Right, either because they thought it was a, a lark, you know, scheduling problems or whatever, yeah. mm-hmm. and they turned it down. I bet a, they wish they went afterwards. There's so. a festival in Europe, I think, at the same time too. Some some yeah. of the acts played there, but. Well, and Mick Jagger was the Stones were invited. He was filming something in Australia. And oh, uh, Ned Kelly filming Ned. Kelly. Ned Kelly, yeah, yeah his, and his uh, and you know Janis Joplin was invited, and she decided to be on the Dick Cavett show instead. 
Bad uh, move, Janice. Bad well, move. you know, but her manager is apparently the one that convinced her. Yeah, when you think about it, yeah, you're going to get more. You think more exposure on the Dick Cavage. That's right, because nobody thought this was going to turn out to be what it really was. It was just right. another concert venue. Well, and you think about it, this is you know Southern New York. This is not uh, you know any place anybody's even heard of. Although Jimi Hendrix apparently hung out in the area. And some other musical people. So apparently it yeah. has a history it, it's with not, music. Yeah, it's not too far from a place um, where Bob Dylan, Dylan that's had recorded was. with yes. his group called The Band. And The Band is yeah. famous for going out on their own later. One of some of my favorite songs, like The Wait and The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down and sure, Up that, on Crippin' Creek. Yeah, because their, their album, shortly around this time, was songs from Big Pink, yes. which was it's still one of the greatest albums ever recorded. Those guys, it's Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm and lots of other folks. It shall be a Levon. That's absolutely that's Love right. Levon Helm. Well, I mean, and you can't miss his voice. Oh, Nobody yeah. sings like he did. That's for sure. May he rest yeah, in so peace. So that, that was all in this rural New York area too. So there was some familiarity with this area, but it was pretty much out in the middle of nowhere yeah. on a big farm in and, Bethel, New York. Yeah, and these guys said, "Well, okay, we'll, we're going to give this a try and have this." concert out here we're going to try and sell some advanced tickets right and actually sold like 186,000 tickets through mail order and local record stores in the new york area how about that yeah that's you know it's a totally different venue than concerts today right yeah there's no it's ticket all master yeah, there's no all online manual. yeah this no, is no ticket master no internet and they sold it and then they Got almost to the time, and the contractors told them, well, you can have Ticket Booster, you can have a stage, but not both. So they figured out, well, all right, we'll have the stage, and we'll just forget about selling any more tickets. Right. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, you think you've sold 186000 and apparently the, the, there were two price levels. In today's money, it was equivalent of like $120, $170, the two levels. Yeah. So these are not cheap tickets for the day. Right. And they've sold 186,000. They they sold millions of dollars worth of tickets in advance. Now they also paid out a lot of money because they had to pay these acts. Oh yeah, yeah, because they didn't get you know just your local bands. You know, right. you're, you're getting some you know serious major stuff here. Some were on the rise and some were well known. What they really missed out on, see, promoters today would be all over this. Was concessions <laughs> <laughs> and pay toilets, t-shirts, t-shirts. Yeah, you know, yeah. no swag. Can you imagine the swag? They could the money they could have made. Oh my God! Three dollars a piece for T-shirts selling for twenty five bucks a head. Right. So, but it, it the mythos then became a big deal again. Like it's four hundred thousand people, but every boomer claims to have piled into a Volkswagen bus and of driven. Course. You know to to right. Who gets in a car and drives somewhere like that on a lark? Yeah. A, a car that doesn't work. <laughs> a car that doesn't work. Let's drive six hours to Michigan in a car that doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. That's Who right. does stuff like that? There are precedents, gentlemen. <laughs> yes, there are precedents. Um, but what amazes me about when you talk about the the era, when you think about the hippie era, which really the hip we think of the sixties for the hippie era, but really the hippie era is really Woodstock into the early seventies. That's right. really that's when it the really... true hippie era. But when you think about the 60s, you know, free love and all that, what people think of is Woodstock. That's Those great. are the pictures they, they have That's in right. their head. There's a progression that gets there, sort of. Sergeant Peppers with the Beatles was a part of one of those changes. But that really, it's kind of like you're, you're revving up, but you don't launch until Woodstock. 
And that's when well, that's when it be, that's when it really explodes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, the Summer of Love I think is '67. Yeah. And Hate Ashbury, which is ironic considering is, the the riots in Detroit in the summer, which I very nearly died from because that's when I had my tracheotomy. Couldn't find a hospital to take me to because of all the riots. Mm. Oh, way so, back in the day. Yeah, yes. way back in the day. Anyway, sorry, I digress. That's all right. It, history is often personal. Yes, it is. It's possible to have the mumps on VE Day. <laughs> <laughs> Skip a bit, brother. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, we've been non sequiturs are yeah. Right. We've been laughing all day. Uh, it's only ten again. You know, would you like more gravy? <laughs> Just some gravy with that. More gravy with that. Uh, Best it, question ever in a restaurant. Yeah. And the answer, of course, is always yes. yes. <laughs> um, oh goodness, we're off the <coughs> off the rails now. Uh, again, this this moment of this peak of the counterculture. It's building in San Francisco. It's uh, building in California. Uh, it's building in New York. But then it leads to, I think the next summer is Altamont. And the uh, Hells Angels end up stabbing someone at the concert at Altamont. Uh, you know, not a good decision to ask the Hells Angels to be security. Well, seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> what could go wrong? That's right. <laughs> and then I think the next summer is Manson. Is, is he seventy one? I believe Manson is seventy one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. You're talking about you know it, these are all expressions of what was going on yes. underneath, and a lot of that started here with Woodstock. Well, I don't know. I th- I think it explodes at Woodstock. I think it had to have been going on before because. Where are all these VW buses that all these people are climbing to come from? I mean, you know, this this is a really... I think the culture is pretty well defined, but it doesn't have the the the, the touch point, the, the spark mm-hmm. to make it go off the rails. Because really, I think, Martin, that's your point. This is where it has really gone... This is the starting point for going off the rails. Right. It, it, it's, it seems like at this point, it's this, this super hopeful point. Peace, love. We, and again, no, there there wasn't really violence. Four hundred thousand people really did sit in the mud and smoke dope and listen to music and left each other alone for the most part. Well, there was lots of sex going on. Let's make sure we. <laughs> well, that's true. That. What was a whole lot of not leaving each other alone was going on saying, yeah, too. Right. Yeah. But it, you know, anymore when you get four hundred thousand people in a spot. You're, you're, gonna, you're probably going to have to have tasers keep them apart. Yeah, the police will be called in at some point or another. Yeah, another. and that didn't happen here, well, generally, speaking, generally speaking. I mean, you could get 400,000 people together in a spot, but today we're so polarized that you could, you know, you'd, it'd have to be either Democrats or Republicans. And even then, <laughs> having certain kinds of Democrats or certain kinds of Republicans. You, you, know, you can't even have a broad mix, even yeah. on one side of the political aisle anymore. Which, for those who lived through it, went through it, and you know promoted the idea, they would claim that's kind of the point. You know, yeah. this was so, you know it was it did what they wanted it to be the summer of love. We are where we all got along. Yeah, I'm not sure how true it is, well, and how much of that's wishful thinking. One of the interesting things when you look at, especially in today's climate, you start taking these things into account. You know, one of the things that um, is interesting about the '60s is that you know this this counterculture mainstreams with the the young and what that really means is not that just is it it's a white middle class movement yes 
Well, that's true. Yes, and, yeah. Because the thing about white middle class kids and, and rich kids, those are the ones that can afford to drive across country. Right. To come and do or even pay drive across the state. Or across the state, yeah. Because you know. not everybody had cars like we do now. And when we think about that, it's only 50 years ago, but you know, your family still unlikely had one car. One car. Maybe your teenager had a beat up car like a VW. Right. But, you know, I got four cars because I got four adults in this house. I mean, I don't have four cars, but each one of us has our own car to drive. Right. That would have been unheard of. Well, you're in, exactly in right. Yes, this is a very... That's why they would find somebody that had one or could get a hold of one right. and they came in groups, which kind of helped bring together which, if that... if you do this, that's the only way to go. Well, that's I, right. I will admit that. That's you know, exactly you go right. In a group. It, it really... It, it, it adds to the mystique right. because but, it's a shared experience. But if we go in a group now, we just say, well, whose car are we going to take? It's Back true. then, it would have been well. Jimmy's got the van, so Jimmy's got to drive. Uh, yeah. Well, That's exactly right. You know, somebody's got to got to drive. Where in the world can we pick up a car somewhere? Right. So it is very much a a white middle class uh, cultural movement, which to me I find fascinating. Which I think is why so many boomers like to claim it because you know those kids were just like everybody else. You know, they were from what would be considered normal, average families. Uh-huh. And, you know, they had the, the wherewithal to, to be, you know, touched or to dialed into this, this movement. Because this is before internet, before 500 channels on, on cable and 300 streaming services to go along with that. I mean, you know, radio was how all information spread. And you still had to have the wherewithal and the time to do this stuff. Yeah. So this wasn't just a bunch of, Poor hippies yeah. getting together, you know, no, a bunch of people on a commune. It's a lot of college kids. Yeah, a lot of college kids. Of course, kids. it's in August, so it's, you know, right before going back to it's school. Last so. hurrah before you go back to college. Yeah, exactly. With, to with, of course, and another we haven't mentioned, we have to remember that this is right smack dab in the middle of the Vietnam War. Yes. And that was part of that. And one of the reasons I think that Woodstock has looked upon with some scorn in some uh, areas it's very similar to what you say you're talking about white middle class here it's white upper middle class that we're doing all this the famous because, privilege the famous privilege that's right because the poor folks are in a damn trench in Vietnam because right. they can't go to college and you know and there, so there's a there's a tension here between the nation that you know would in many respects continue to explode during mm-hmm. this time and for many years after and, and if you weren't in college if you were Poor. That's right. You know, you either were in the army or you were working multiple jobs. Well, see, we're talking about the draft. So, right. you know, if you're of the right age, it's very likely that you're fi- that you're hunkered down uh, or even killed in Vietnam uh, yeah. at this point. Which yeah. is, and yeah. ironically, that's one of the things that these privileged individuals were supposedly protesting against. It's a little early for that, though. Well, no, I, I think there's it's, it's about some that. of it. Yeah, because yeah, from especially from the Tet Offensive forward, right. That's when the anti-war movement really takes off, right? Yeah, because even though the Tet Offensive was not a a loss, even though people think that, right, we kicked their butts, but it was the it was the first time we were shocked by what they could do. That's right. Well, yes, and right. it was also on television. It was the first televised. You know, and it, it we're really, seeing the body bags. Yeah. yeah, we didn't see that before. That was always yeah. something that was well, it, or it was a greater cause. It, it brought the war directly to. The streets of Saigon, yes. in a way it hadn't been before, uh, because, it, like you said, it was a surprise, and they had infiltrated, and that's what made it seem like, okay, the war is now unwinnable, and you're right, that's it's kicking off that wave of protest. So I really like 
Robert, what you brought up there about, yes, it, this is predominantly this upper middle class revolt from our parents kind of movement. Um, and again, this all of this free love counterculture movement is peaking. And I find, like I said, I find fascinating where this ends up, and I'm not sure why. How do you go from 400,000 people sitting in the mud and smoking dope and getting along to Manson ordering his followers to go into a house and kill everybody that's in it? Well, it's two years later, and they all claim to be part of the same movement. Well, but the Manson followers, though, that's a—I mean—that's a such a small subset of a tiny portion. So it's not like you can say everybody at Woodstock was a Manson follower, right? So I would prefer. But, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess where I was going with it. So I, I get how, and I think that's part of why it's hard to understand how do you get from free love to we're going to murder this pregnant woman in her own home. But I think what you're seeing, because again, it's, I, I think it's no different than any other cult. And that is you get these same age people, you know, they're young, they got time and a little bit of money compared to the, the uh, you know, those who can't get involved in this stuff. And there's drugs. There's almost always drugs involved. And that starts, especially when you think about the drugs back then, LSD, very mind altering. You know, this is stuff that, in ways bigger than normal drugs, yeah. alter your perceptions, make and, you much more long, susceptible. Right, the long-term effects of LSD on your decision-making and your perceptions is kind of unknown at this time. That's right. right. And I, I will say, too, Manson was a master manipulator. Yes. He knew how to manipulate broken people. Most Cult of the, leaders always do. Most That's of right. the, the, the girls that followed were, in their own words, castaways, thrown out by their families to a large degree. Now, that may be their perception, their exaggeration, uh, but their squeaky there was probably was some a, of that. I mean, she was a runaway uh, squeaky from. Uh, so he knew what to do to manipulate them, to make them feel included, and in return, then they did whatever he asked. He was, he is, he was a... In that way, he was a prototypical sexual predator. Yeah. Because, I mean, let's face it. Any cult leader, it's always about sex. He did. He manipulated all the women through sex. Yeah. Uh, it, that were a part of the, the family. Absolutely. Well, I'm thinking what you're probably trying to go towards here, maybe this is a better thing than Manson to, to explain the, the change. The Kent State Massacre is only a year, less than a year from this point. And it's kind of the antithesis of what you're talking about, because you go in August of '69 from free love to pe- to students being shot on campus in May of the next year, and so and the the Kent two, State was in '70. It was '70, yeah, exactly. Kent State was yeah a little bit later. Uh, May May fourth, actually. So it's you know, the, all that idea, and it's definitely where the two the two cultures are smashing together. That's exactly the, right. The kids that can't go to college that are in the National Guard. That's exactly right. Looking at these, to their minds, these snot-nosed... Privileged kids. Privileged kids that are in college that ought to be in class right. making the world better, thinking they're making the world better by standing around waving that's a just, sign. That's right. Because they were so ginned up by the whole Woodstock m- moment. You, know, you think about it. 
the poor kids can't afford the freaking drugs, but the rich kids can. Well, you know, Forrest Gump is a great... I was hoping we would get to that because it's a really good view of, of all it this. It is. So the, the big protests on the National Mall, you know, Forrest Gump, he's, he had just met with the president. Yep. Showed him his ass. <laughs> Medal of Honor. Round his honor. neck. Yep. Yeah. And he's just wandering around. He yeah. doesn't give a wreck because, I mean, he's just a, he's a, just a goofus, you know? A good goofus. But, That's right, yes. But he's essentially just a good guy. He does, uh, but he's one of these guys, though, that didn't have money to go off and do this. Not that he probably would have, but yeah. this is not the character as he was written. But he shows up and they're all excited because they got somebody in uniform to, to talk. And of course, right. the microphones go out when he talks. That's exactly right. <laughs> Abby Hoffman, man, that's just great, man. It's because he's the yeah. only one that hears it. Yeah. Exactly. It's just awesome, man. But, you know, they, they, they latch all... on to him. Yeah. And, and I think that's just a great, whether it's unintended or not, but it's a great illustration of what you're talking about. Yeah. They weren't full of soldiers, these protesters, because soldiers were off getting killed or shoot, you know, right. killing others, or they were on you know manning bases, whatever. Because you know we didn't really have. It's not like we had ten million guys in in Vietnam. No, if we did, it would have been over in a week. But you know, the thing is, though, just like a lot of countercultural protests, because every era has got some kind of countercultural protest. Sometimes it's small. Mm-hmm. Then it was big. It's getting big now. Mm-hmm. But in almost every case, the people who are protesting are not the ones who are affected by what's being protested. It's the privileged. It's the privileged. Protesting on behalf of others. Now, that's not always the case. Like sure. A lot of the stuff you're seeing now is truly grassroots. Right. And that's great because if, if you're not part of who's affected... You should defer to those who are. And yeah. far too often we don't see that. And I think you're seeing a lot of yeah, that. That's just plain virtue signaling. It is. And we yeah. still see a lot of virtue signaling. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. If, if it doesn't affect you, then maybe you ought to stand aside and, and let. And support. But you shouldn't be the leader. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily saying that's exactly what was going on in the 60s. But I think the 60s is such a great example of it. It was very compressed in time, too. It was very noticeable to the to the culture that was around. Oh, yeah. It. yeah, I mean, television. You had all kinds of big stuff going. on. I mean, think about the '60s, were a massively, uh, just a massive upheaval. Right. In so many ways, you had the death of a president. Mm-hmm. You had the death of his brother. You had the death of the death of a civil rights leader, mm-hmm. all within five years. Mm-hmm. And it's multiple body blows to the to the American psyche. Yeah, it really and, is. Vietnam itself was huge. And in the middle of that, you've got space race going on mm-hmm. where we're, you know, finally shooting ahead of the Russians yep. uh, after them kicking your ass in the late 50s. You know, we start doing stuff that, and we finally get to the moon. And matter of fact, we get to the moon right before Woodstock. Right. So yeah, the, that happens in July of 69. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, 60s, it's hard for us to imagine in many ways the, the cultural upheaval that was going on. And when there's that kind of upheaval going on, you know, I think some people, especially upper middle class folks that don't have, you know, have to, to, to go join the army or be working all the time, they're looking for something to latch on to. A search for meaning. Exactly. Oh. A search for significance. Mm-hmm. That's why all the boomers claim to have been there. You know, it's significant. It's a cultural touchstone. We it all makes part me of matter. And that's yeah. in their mind. That's, well, it, it, 
in a way, I think more is like I want to be part of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, uh, part it of matter as opposed to I. Yeah. yeah, well, I think it's a subtle difference. I want to be part of something as opposed to, um, you know, I'm significant because of, yeah. you know, and, and camaraderie I, versus standing out. And I, and I think there's a contrast to the Gen X outlook, whereas you have the, the generation coming back from the war working very hard to rebuild a nation that has suffered, again, other body blows. The depression and the war, and they're rebuilding the country. And the fifties are a time of general success. Yes, and there's there should have been this incredibly hopeful moment, but then there there's just this the boomers get unsatisfied. And it, but I think the contrast to Gen X is we would we would recognize. Okay, the generation before us has value. They rebuilt something. We don't understand what they went through. We're not going to rebel against them. Well, and that's the thing. It's when you don't have any experience of the bad times. Yeah. It's really hard to sympathize or understand those that did. It's very hard for somebody who grows up in the 50s, who was born... Anytime in that first half of the the, the boomer generation, yeah. uh, for them to, to truly understand what it meant to grow up during the Depression yeah. and World War II. You know, parents can talk about it all they want, but, you know, think about when your parents talk about the old days <laughs> when right. you're a kid. Yeah. Nobody wants to listen to that. Yeah. And, you know? and it's not that the 50s were this incredibly rosy time. No, I mean, they were scared to death. There were issues in the... Again, right. The Cold War's hanging over our heads. Racial discrimination. All that comes to a head. Yeah. It, Before we get to the 60s, yeah. is it starts to come to a head. It's right. not done, but it, it's where it starts. And and I, I think this boomer generation takes those flaws and says, everything's horrible. It's like, no, wait a minute. Let's use our judgment a little bit more. Go back to 1936. Everything's really freaking horrible then. Right. Um, yes, there are problems right now, but we can solve them. There are people looking to really solve these problems. We don't need a full-scale rebellion to throw off everything. Maybe it's easy for us to say that being who we are. Yes. Because you, you, you can apply something right. to that similarly today. Yeah. And because, you know bunch of old white guys it's easy for us to say no you don't need to tear everything down because from our perspective things aren't bad yeah but we're whole it's a whole different ball game for other people yeah so i i get that whole wanting to tear things down but again i go back to you're the wrong people crying about wanting to tear stuff down <laughs> yeah well yeah you know, you've, you've experienced nothing but privileged and privilege and i i get guilt you might yeah. feel some guilt from that, but instead of rebellion, how about just being a positive force for change? 
Well, I mean, because what was the change that they were advocating? I still don't quite... I mean, getting out of Vietnam, I suppose, that's what they would that's say. That's probably the central thing that yeah. probably most of them would... Because it was the thing that affected people their age the most. Right. Getting out of Vietnam. It, it, was, the, it was the air pollution that they couldn't escape. It was, right. it was everywhere. Uh, and it colored everything around you. I get that. And uh, we could have a lot of discussions about whether we shouldn't have been there or not. Uh, it was a result of fear. Uh, whether it was true or not, we don't really know. Uh, the Domino Act, and I th- you know, there were a lot of theories as to why we yeah. had to do what we did. Uh, well, I think there's a lot of stuff going on as far as, I mean, not just the war. I think the war is the most visible. But when you think also about the cultural changes that have gone on. Um, so you, we don't think about it as much, but you know, the, the, the beatnik movement in the 50s is the, the father or grandfather, depending on how you want to look at it, of... The, the counterculture movement in the 60s. Right. So, same kind of thing. A bunch of weird kids and their weird music smoking dope. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially... But indoors. But indoors. Not, indoors. not in the mud. Right. right. They're, yeah, well, yeah, I'm talking about the, the, the thing in general. But, <laughs> but much yeah. of this is still privilege and privilege, right? Well, yeah. Because, again, yeah. you've got the ability to do that. That's right. Um, so, it's not like this sort of thing is brand new. Um, but... You know, all these kids that are coming of it because the 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 beatniks are the ones who went to war and came back and just and they're the ones who truly rejected all that was horrible because they actually participated in it. Right. It's, they're the Lieutenant Dan's. Yeah. 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 Essentially, um, the ones with they go over there with great optimism and belief that we can do this, and all of a sudden, shit. Or happens. they're the ones who grew up in the in the middle of the the depression and the war, and but missed it. You know, or maybe they were in Korea. Well, I mean. When I say Lieutenant Dan, there's actually, it's, you know, think about it, his whole backstory in there is all my ancestors went off and fought because yes. that's what you do. And all of a sudden, that his world is turned upside down because of that. He's the poster boy of that pre-war, well, of course, my, my ancestors all fought. I have to do that. And then you realize, well, what does fighting mean? What yeah. is war? It is hell, as William Tecumseh Sherman would say. And it becomes very real right. for many of that generation. So, in addition to, you know, transforming this beatnik culture, you know, you get the pill in 61, 62, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yes. So, free love has taken on a new meaning. It just doesn't mean, oh, it doesn't matter if we sleep around. There's no consequences to sleeping around now. So... Well, no birthing consequences. There are venereal disease consequences. Yeah, but nobody ever worries about those. That's very true. I that's mean, great. you know, um, that, that's not nearly as big a problem unless you get syphilis. Uh, as yeah. you know, birthing a child. Right. Uh, not that birthing children are a problem, but it's a no. whole other thing. That's great. <laughs> Although that's a problem that does last at least eighteen years. Um, so there's a lot of things culturally that are going on as well. You know that that allow this to happen. And again, to get the pill, it's upper middle, you know, white middle class, upper middle class. That's correct. All these things feed into this general dissatisfaction with the way your parents did things, and that's inevitable. But it's like a perfect storm of means, ability, and lack of consequences. I think you've really hit it right on the head. There, there's so many things intersecting here that enable... Yes, that, enable. That's a good way to put it. That dissatisfaction with the way your parents did things to then balloon into something much larger. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and Francis, I, I think you were on to something, too... When you change my 
you know, it ends at Manson to no, it ends at Kent State. Yeah. How does it, how do we get to Kent State? Because um, ostensibly they both had the same reasoning behind them. Both were an, both were anti-war, at least tangentially. Yeah. Uh, well, moments that are. But was Woodstock an anti-war? Moment? It became that after yeah. the fact. Well, I yeah, think. Th- that's after the fact. We often assign meaning after the fact. And that's correct. It's, I think Woodstock start really started out as what. It was. A rock concert. Yeah. It was a way to, to, for a bunch of people to get together, smoke dope, have sex, and listen to music. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which is not all bad. Right. No. I mean, yeah, it's it's very much... Not all. And, I, <laughs> and I, I, I still go back to that sea change uh, of Sgt. Pepper's, which was just two years ahead, previous to this, where all of a sudden, rock and roll is now something very different. The hair gets a lot longer. Yes. And you get experience... All of a sudden, drug use becomes more... Mainstreamed. I mean, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, for goodness sakes. Yeah. I mean, that's all of a sudden stuff that was underground before because, you know, the Beatles yes. early on, they were fairly, they, even though they were, were long, they were clean cut. Uh, and that was, now that they got big enough, they realized we're the Beatles. And I think Lennon had a lot to do with this. We can do this. Or Yoko. Well, this is pre Yoko, 67. I know. Yeah. We, we always like to assign blame, blame to Yoko. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> For things that went wrong with the Beatles. Beatles. That's right. But, you know, it's, it's that's not, and I'm, it, that, well, yeah. oh, that's a huge sea change. That's and a good then, point, because even the Stones and the Who, mm-hmm. maybe not the Who, because I think they were a little bit later, but even the Stones started out in suits and skinny ties. That's correct. It was that, and that was, a, that was an image that was created, and, and it was Sergeant Peppers that said, no, we're going to go in a different direction. And the Stones quickly followed because they, they released yeah. their Satanic Majesty's Request, which was like their faux uh, album immediately later after with turbans and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, everything else changed. And all of a sudden, the hair is longer. Uh, the drug use is uh, above uh, above board. Everybody knows they're doing right. that. Right, and the drugs are why the music is so different now. And why it's correct. so good. Is, is well, the, that's you know, correct that's... because you know guys like you know the, Sergeant Peppers is a great example. George Harrison starts uh, experimenting with a lot of this Sithar music and things like that because, you know, they got all these gazillion dollars so they can do what they want to. Well, they start beginning very experimental and then you have the rise of, as the drug use gets going on, you have the Doors, and uh, which, you know, they were famous for that, mm-hmm. and the Who itself, you know, I mean, my lord. Uh, of course, Brian Jones dies during all this time from yep. the Stone. So, and there's Keefe. There's Keefe. Yes, that's right. That's Keith. right. That's right. Has somehow Keith Richards has managed to walk through all of this unscathed. I mean, he looks well, like not unscathed. Yes, <laughs> that's right. But still, the guy's still around, and you know, it's a uh, uh, he's well, and, and you know, I'm not a huge Beatles person, but me either. I, I do but, give them credit for. You're right. The the switch is changed, and you go from sock hop style rock and roll yes, to rock right. and roll that now can be open to anything. Whether it's politics or personal angst or whatever, right? They're, it stopped they're, they're cleansing like, itself for the radio. Yeah, that's yeah. There was no sanitization going on here anymore, right? And, and because they were the Beatles, they were big enough. They knew they were going to sell, and they and they convinced all these well, others. Again, that, this white middle class thing feeds this mm-hmm. because I think what's going on because I think this is when you're really seeing what we might call, at least as far as. Uh, form, maybe not style, 
album rock uh-huh. in the sense that yes. you are no longer doing singles. Yes, AOR. For, for, yeah, for radio play. That's right. right. Which, you which, are doing an album which is an event in, unto itself. Uh-huh. Like well, Sgt. Peppers. Sgt. Peppers was one of the first ones to yeah. do that. And, and everything they did yeah, after that conceptual. Were, 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 exactly. was done that. The White Album, Magical yes. Mystery Tour, uh, you know, Abbey Road, all those things. That's yeah. just, you know, the Beatles. And, and, yeah, and exp- I mean, it expands even beyond them. You think about Tommy. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The rock opera. Quadrophenia. So with that, you don't have to censor yourself for the radio anymore because you, your, your goal is not to get a single played on the radio. You're to your sell the album. Your goal is to sell the album. That's right. So that in itself, Which again, cash you got to have for... some money to buy those. Yeah. Because, you know, singles are a lot cheaper. Yeah, singles The albums are... cost more. So again, you got to have money. It, it, it all, in, in many ways, it is the prototypical baby boomer problem. Because there's something I remember from 1984. There's an article about voters, who, baby boomer voters. You know, they're supposed to be Democrats, right? Because they come out of that counterculture. Well, the article was about baby boomers who were voting for Reagan. And there's a great article about this one woman. She was mid-20s, I guess. Um, so she's the tail end of, or maybe early 30s, but she's the tail end of the boomers. So they're born in the early 60s then. Yes, and her thing was, you know, she wanted to vote for Mondale, but she recognized Reagan was the far better choice, especially monetarily for her. So she knew that Reagan was going to win, so she could vote for Mond- She could vote her conscience and still get her pocketbook, is the way she put it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So to me, that really epitomized the baby boomer... Um, Ability to sell out. <laughs> well, ability is, I'm going to say, two-facedness. But that's kind of I mean, the same way. Orwellian, almost, uh, double-think. Uh, yeah. I was wondering if you were going to pull that yeah. out there because of the year this happened. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, it's that white middle-class thing that's trying to, to find their significance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either because they want to be part of this cool group or because, you know, they, they have sold out or they're beginning that. Because, you know... The 80s is when the baby boomers really start to take places of position and power. Right. Yeah. They, they come of age. Yeah. yeah. They, they become the yuppies. Yeah. That, yeah. Yuppies are boomers. Yeah. Yeah. Right, they they go from sitting in the mud, smoking dope, to driving BMWs and going to the law firm. Yeah. Or having advertising firm. Having ponytails. Right. Things yeah. Like that. The kids who are at Kent State, yeah. they're now in the law firms. You know, they're the, the junior executives and things like that. Uh, well, guys who are in the army, yeah. they don't get those kind of jobs. You know, they're the guys that get thrown out of work when all the automotive factories get moved to Japan and right. to Mexico yeah. and wherever else. So correct me if I'm wrong, guys. We were talking in the show prep, and I asked Martin. I said, "So is this going to be a takedown of the Boomer generation?" And he says, "Oh, absolutely." It doesn't sound like that's where we ended up with this. It sounds more like it's it's a takedown of a the bit, privileged. A bit, a bit, a bit, a bit. It is a bit. It, it, we're attacking white privilege. It sounds like. Well, we're attacking a particular expression of it, definitely. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're attacking the notion of, I have all these advantages, I could do something positive with them, but I've decided instead to pile into somebody's VW bus, drive to a farm in New York, and sit in the mud for three days. So you're talking, we're talking, we're, this is a critique. But that's only a three-day event, though. So yeah, but you're forever changed by it in many well, you ways. Are, your yeah. attitude is so you're talking about we're attacking the concept essentially 
of symbolism over substance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. And absolutely. that's kind of what I, I like. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to zero in on that. Let me let me let me see if I can sum it up this way and you can see a little bit of Martin's perspective on this. My parents boomers. Dad was 45, mom was 46. But early boomers. Early boomers. Yeah, first first year boomers. But, right. Whereas uh, ours were pre. Yes. Yeah. 1934, but, 1935 for me. Uh, yeah. Neither uh, of, of my folks had two quarters to rub together. Mine either. So my you know, when my mother would talk about stuff like this and we'd say, What about the Beatles? Did you like the Beatles? She's like, We didn't have time for the Beatles. We were busy trying to eat. Right. So, you know, that her, is a great, that's very well put. And, yeah, that's, right. and that's, you know, that's my mom's background is, you know, just every day is a struggle. We don't, there's no way we're going to worry about any of this. We other. don't have money to spend on albums. Yeah, we don't, and we don't have the mental energy to worry about Woodstock and, and all this other. Or even what's we, on the radio, it sounds like. We, yeah. We've got to get jobs and eat. Right. So, you know, this is a, I, I love that line. You know, that's such a, a wonderful illustration of what I've said before. And I think Woodstock in the this free love BS is the beginning of what I'm going to talk about. And that is that when a culture, a society gets so affluent, that's what destroys the culture. Because you now have time... Just f up everything. You have time to complain. Whether you, got you have time to, to complain, you have time it. to actually, you know, do things like create a cancel culture where some snide remark you made ten years ago, somebody captured on film, or you're a kid and gets captured and played back, and you lose your freaking scholarship because mm-hmm. you didn't know any better. You know this kind of thing where nothing is forgivable. We are destroying ourselves primarily because we have created a culture of success and prosperity. And yes, I understand. Not everybody has that cult, that success and prosperity. That's a given. But overall. But overall. Yeah. Because if you're not culturally prosperous, how do you even have the time to be a helicopter mom? Yeah. Much right. less, you know, send your kid on all these freaking travel teams and all this other BS, send every kid you have off to college, whether they should be there or not, and learn all this BS. That the hippie counterculture kids are now the tenured professors teaching your kids. Yep. Yep. Interesting you say that because uh, I, I'm, you're totally spot on on this. And yet, as you say, Martin, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll go scripture here, the poor you will have with you always, mm-hmm. they're still here. They've never gone away. There are still tons of people for whom this entire concept of idea of affluence is offensive because for some reason, their fault, no, you know, their fault, our fault, nobody's fault, doesn't matter. They don't have, they can't grab hold of that. And in the modern case, and I think the 60s is, is kind of where a lot of this started, they'll go into the drug culture now because there's buku money there. It's dangerous, but for the poor with any real future, it seems like a lifeline to affluence yeah. because they're well, seeing everybody like else. Future. Absolutely, it seems that again, right. it's a lie. There's no question; I, I, it's a lie. Being a, being a believer in free will, you know, are there systemic problems? Yeah, can they be overcome? Yes. Yes. Make decisions that lead to success, 
not decisions that lead to hopelessness. Well, yeah, and, well, the, and, the, the and the drug culture is one of those easy off-ramps early. Yes. Well, and part of the, again, it's easy for us to say that, make decisions yeah. that lead to success, not destruction. But the definition of success for me is different even from you guys. Yeah. Much less some poor kid, white, black, Hispanic, or whatever, in the inner city. Their def- definition of success is going to be a lot different, whether it's a lower one or just different. You know, well, success. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is part of that affluence that the that's kind of prosperity where I'm going to. Yes, yeah. is that success is far too often defined as stuff. Exactly. Material. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what's seen. And the only way to get that yes. is money. And the only way to get money without actually being able to do anything. Because our significance is tied up in the stuff that we have. You got it. It's the, the $400 tennis shoes. It's the it's the consumer culture, which has ironically brought about much of our affluence. Yeah. It's also bringing about these societal problems as well. It does. Uh, you know, you can make the argument that in, in some ways... Marx is right about some of the economic inequities. But like a lot of people who are right about what's wrong, he's wrong about what needs to be done to make it right. To, to right. fix it. Yes, yes. Yeah. That, so, that famous... That's he was, Chesterton. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was a good diagnoser, but not very good of a prescriber. Well, I think that's the problem, though. I think most people are very good at seeing the problem, yeah. but not understanding what needs to be done to fix yeah. it. And I include all the people that are that are trying to fix things today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a great part of the American uh, makeup of somebody ought to do something, but you got to do the right something. Oh, there's no question. And that's, that. of course, the, yes. you know, what is the right something? Action of, in and of itself is a morally neutral uh, concept. It is not a moral good, inevitably. Not inevitably. Exactly. It's got to be the right kind of action. Precisely. Right That's right. Action. So it, it does, you know, there's a quant- there's a quality that has to be uh, evaluated when it comes to that. Uh, as opposed to, well, we've got to do something or it can't get any, you know, you know all that. that well, you can't get yeah, any worse. Again, it is a, it's a great American impulse. We've got to do something. But, no. you know, see well, what? You, you said it different ways. And I think that illustrates unintentionally where things went wrong. First, you said... Something needs to, you know, somebody somebody ought to do something. Yeah. yeah. Some individual is the implication. To, we've got to do something. <laughs> that's right. All right. Now, that's a subtle distinction, even though you meant probably exactly the same yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We have gone from the individual needing to do something to society, meaning government. Government. Yeah. Needing to do something. Yeah. That's a very dangerous place to be, ultimately. Because in the main... Problems like this, yes, they're fixable, but the solutions are difficult and they take time. And it's hard for one generation to see the results. Right. To really fix something long term, you often don't see the results of your actions. And that can be unfulfilling and un... That's why so much of what gets done is a Band-Aid. Yes. Well, yeah. that's right. We, we, we where the long-term fix is we bring your kids up right. We can't think that way, though. You know, get where your kids understand that, yes, making a living is great, but also make a life. And take care of your family and do whatever other private charity you can manage. And that really is the long-term solution to lots of things. Right. You where know, the, but is you're right. It's You don't see that, so it's... 
We've got to have government do something. Well, because and right, there's a lot of stuff that government does need to do that it ignores. Yeah. You know, for instance, just take this this city where we live. We know that there are parts of this city that have been, for all intents and purposes, abandoned as far as making it better. Yeah. And every large city has them. I think we have a smaller segment of that than many do. I think we're very blessed that way. But it is very much the case, and we all know it. Certain parts of town, hey, Bosco, do not get their roads fixed. Mm-hmm. Certain parts of town do not have street cleaners come through. And that's still mm-hmm. a thing because I've seen them. Yep. Uh, not very often, not in my end of town. Not that I live in a bad end of town, but I live in an older part of town that is not considered the, the place to live. And we just know this is true. Uh, for instance, just a great example of, this, uh, of diagnosing being uh-huh. good, but right. solutions being bad. Remember, there was a, a Walmart that was going to go in downtown on Broadway a few years back. Mm-hmm. Nobody, well, not nobody. The players in the social justice movements didn't want it there. And you can have legitimate reasons not to want a Walmart to come in because they need to pay better. They need to stop relying on government to do some of the things that other businesses do. For instance, you know, pay decent benefits mm-hmm. for your full-time employees. Walmart makes a crap ton of money. They could afford to pay better. And that's fine. That's an argument you can make. You can also make the argument that people are willing to work for it, so why should I pay more? I think that's a very crass, bad argument to make. But right. anyways, one of the arguments against Walmart is it drives out all the small businesses, which is true. That is true. That's correct. But where they were going to put it, those small businesses went out of business years ago. This would have provided jobs. It would have provided a real place for people to get fresh food because yep. it's going to be a marketplace for you know with groceries. But they didn't want it and ultimately didn't go because they they regulated it out of being able to come. You sticking around, dog? Yes, he is. We're in his morning na- or mid-morning nap area in the atrium here. Yes, in the atrium. Well, fellas, that was pretty good stuff. I think we're going to wrap up on there. We're gonna, oh, we're going to end with the Walmart story? Okay. Yeah. I figured we'd go was, somewhere else after that. I was trying to wrap up with my mom's anecdote, but you kept going with it. And it was so good. I was like, well, let's just keep going. But we're at 50-some minutes, so I think we've And we thought this would be like a 30-minute episode. Yeah, we thought this would be a short one, but... Uh, but it, we need to, I think we need a good summation. I mean, at least a one-sentence summation, maybe. It's complicated. It's complicated. Okay, it's complicated. <laughs> well, yeah, we knew that one. Uh, well, the reason I say that is yeah. that... Though I, I hate to end on the Walmart story, mainly because it's just an illustration of the bigger point that, that I think we're all trying to make here, is that, yeah, Woodstock may have been a fun thing, but what it represented, what, what it got turned into, ultimately led to a lot of bad things. Yeah, this, this mythos of it, you know, it's not sustainable. You're going to end up at Altamont. You're going to end up at Kent State. Because in the end, you're not really making good decisions. And the freaks like Manson are going to take advantage of the the, the, the fringes of the fringe movement. Yes. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, although yeah. the you know wasn't really a fringe movement, but <laughs> but you know. But yeah, sitting in the mud smoking dope, I guess is fine. I don't know. I never. Maybe know. for three days. I mean, you saw a lot of good acts. If you were, if you yeah, were. we didn't talk about any of the music. We probably should have, but you know, look it up. There's lots of lots of folks that you. The music not, is unimportant. Yeah, lots of names you know, lots of names you don't know. Right. I mean, really, I think bigger names actually didn't show. Right. <laughs> yeah, the Who and and uh, Hendrix are the, are the biggies. Um, I mean, Hendrix didn't play until eight thirty Monday morning. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, Queen's yeah. Clearwater Revival was there. I mean, Crosby, Stills, and Dash. And it, and it, it was it was a mess. The weather didn't cooperate. Um, that's no bathrooms. Yeah. But so lots of lots of the acts got uh, deferred, and they and they played overnight. Uh, Janis Joplin played at two a.m. one morning. Uh, the Who played at five a.m. Uh, so, uh, but the band. Yeah, again, we mentioned. Oh yeah, the band Dylan. was there. Absolutely, so, Crosby, Stills, and Nash played in the middle of the night. So, well, Francis, buddy, what is next? We're going code of honor next. You know, we've always come up with something cool to say. We've always got some sort of uh, quotation out there. It's one of our most popular episodes. Uh, we have no idea what we're going to do when we start, and yet Robert the Hammer somehow always brings it back together, and we create like a good blacksmith. A really great sword when we're finished. So please join us. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.